Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, I sit down with Ben Rabidou, who is a great analyst here in Canada who covers credit markets. He goes through the macroeconomic picture here around the world and in Canada and does a deep dive, a great job at analyzing the Canadian housing market. He shares a lot of great stuff on Twitter. And in this episode, we go through all of the housing data that is top of mind for everyone here in Canada right now, including um, what we're seeing around housing supply, the demand that we're seeing, population growth. What does it look like right across the country? We get into it all in this episode. We do hit a couple internet issues, so bear with us. I think we were able to kind of snap it all together and edit some of those parts out where we kind of lost connection. So if you pick up a little bit of choppiness in this episode, that's what's going on. So great, just a great chat. Pleased to share this with you. And if you are listening to this and you want to do a deep dive in your own research, We recently put out a population explosion report that we've just updated for 2022. You can get a free copy of that report at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash reports. So that's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash reports. And in that population explosion report, we have all the latest, latest data that we've picked up from all the sources that we pour over here at Rockstar, and we've assembled it into that report. And the reason that we think that's really important, if you're in the real estate market actively, or if you think you're getting into the real estate market, is because the population or demand side of the equation in real estate is obviously a huge component. And we think, even though we talk about it in in these podcasts a lot, is definitely underreported in this country. So if you want all the latest data on that, you can go to rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash reports and pick up our 2022 copy of the population explosion report there. That's it with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. We are live with Ben Rabideau. Am I saying the last name properly? Uh, it's pretty close. It's actually rabbit do, but it's, rabbit. I know it's, it's one of those. I just swear you, you know, but you told me that before and I, then I'm in my head, I'm in my head about it. And everyone laughs when I try to make the last names proper, but I like to rabbit do. Well, they, it's a, it's funny because it used to be EAU way back in the day, which makes a lot more sense. Okay. It used to be rabbit doe. And then they tried to anglicize it and they just bastardized it. Now no one knows how to pronounce it. So both so parents, you're, you're, what, sorry, both parents are French. No, my, my dad's side is French. Your dad's side is French yeah. from Quebec. Yeah. yeah. So you're oh, way back. It used to be EAU. So it used to be Rabido. Okay. And, and it, it made total sense. It was spelled exactly. You pronounce yeah. exactly. But Rabidou. now like, what do you do with O-U-X, right? Yeah. And Rabidou, yeah. like it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Anyway, I feel like it's a little hobby of mine going through these last names, but this means there's a potential that you're a Habs fan in here. Is there? There's a long storied history of Habs fans in my family. Oh, yes, no. Your brother is still a diehard. No, yeah. I feel so bad. Really? Uh, I, I hear you. Are you a Habs fan as well? You. Because we ha- might have to end this right now. You're, yeah, are, you, you know what? I'm a fair weather fan. I will cheer for any Canadian team in the playoffs, but oh, okay. I mean, that's okay. about the extent of my. So you're, you're a bandwagon a guy. You'll jump the bandwagon. I'm a hundred percent bandwagon. Okay. 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 You know what? The Leafs train takes on all bandwagon jumpers. So, you know, you can jump on at any moment that you want. We're, we're game. So, cause this is our year, Ben. I don't know if you know that, but this is the year. I've told my wife that for so many years, Um, but uh, cool. Okay. So you put together some of the best data, I would say that we see right across the country. So thanks for everything you share. I I believe you're serving us all. So thank you for what you're putting out there. So I want to kind of pick in, uh, pick into your data a little bit here. You put out great great reports at edgeanalytics.ca. We subscribe to these reports. They're absolutely fantastic. You share great stuff on Twitter on your Twitter handle, which we'll put into the link on, on uh, the show notes for this particular episode. So I just want to dive into to it, what you're seeing in, in Canada right now um, around, let's start with just activity and housing sales. What, what, yeah. what is catching your eye right now? And I, th- I guess I'm pointing to some of the active inventory stuff and new listing stuff that you've recently, recently been sharing. What are you seeing out there? Sure. Well, uh, maybe to contextualize it. So if we look at 2020, we, we don't have the final year end numbers. We're going to get those next week, but we know that 2021 will have been a record year by about 20% in terms of just home sale transactions. Right. And so the reason that I, I frame that, and I think it's important is like when we start thinking about what 2022 is going to look like, 
it's just going to be really hard to lap that sort of a strong number, right? Uh, and so when we look at um, home sales being at record highs by 20% in, in unit terms, if we look at um, the dollar volume of home sales and we sort of normalize it to GDP over time, I mean, you, you've seen that chart in, in the chart deck and it's like, it's just absurd. It's, it's, you know, it's twice what we've ever seen at any other peak, right? Uh, and so when you realize just how crazy 2021 was, we can sort of assume that 2022 is going to dial back a little bit on the activity front. It almost has to, right? And, and I think that that's going to be the case because we are likely to see a, a couple interest rate hikes at least. I think you're going to see the feds um, try to tighten a little bit around the demand side. And so I think it's reasonable to assume that we're not going to eclipse 2021 in terms of, of unit sales. But the bigger story in Canada, as you alluded to, is just there's just still no supply. And when I say no supply, like when we look across the country and kind of aggregate the inventory across the big metros, we're sitting at um, 20 to 30 year lows in available inventory. I mean, it's just stunning. And, and we've seen inventory levels basically cut in half from 2019 levels. So we call it kind of pre-COVID, right? And so when you combine this very strong demand side with just almost no inventory to buy, you end up with a supply demand balance that's unprecedented. We're sitting at, and when you think about it in terms of months of inventory, right? So that's like, how many months would it take to clear inventory given the current run rate of sales, right? So if you think, so as an example, if you had hundred homes for sale, 20 of them sold in the most recent month, you would say it would take five months to clear that inventory, there's five months inventory. And five to six months is, is a normal kind of balanced market. We're at about 1.8 right now across the country and so so you know when you when you understand you're at 1.8 and you have to get to five to six to have a kind of a balanced market well that means you need to triple the level of inventory if sales stay at this level or you need to cut sales by you know 60 percent to get back to a balanced market or some combination of the two like we're just so far away from balanced market right now and so i think even with you know what's likely to be a a, a material decline in sales in 2022 relative to this crazy year, it's still just going to be a really strong market. I think for at least the first half of the year, like I think the spring is going to be just a blowout crazy spring unless something really dramatic happens. So year over year comparisons get tough just because last year was so crazy. It's still going to be a tight market. A couple interest rate moves. If, for context, do you think quarter point moves? If you were just to guess, two quarter point moves. I, I can't see two half point moves. That's which I know still is not a big move in the world of interest rates, but relative to where we are, it feels huge. Two half point moves. What What would your best guess be? Yeah. So I, I've kind of made the argument. Like if you look at how um, markets are pricing interest rates for 2022 and 2023. Right now, we're looking at about five rate hikes in 2022. That's what's expected based on market pricing. And then another two to three in 2023. I think that's crazy. Um, I'm more in the camp. I mean, you, know, you and I track inflation pretty closely. We see all these dynamics. Some of it's related to supply chains that you know, the Bank of Canada can't really do anything about. But there's starting to be some signs that there's some underlying um, demand side pressures as well. And, and so the, they, they obviously have to do something, right? So I do think you're going to see a couple rate hikes, two to three. That's just not going to move the needle in terms of really crimping demand, I don't think, right? So what I've said is if we look at the state of the consumer in Canada right now, um, it's actually really in good shape. The, the average consumer is in fantastic shape. And I know there are a lot of headlines around household debt. I've written extensively about debt. I've expressed a lot of concern about it. Um, it's still an issue. It's still something I'm concerned about, but it's not an imminent issue. And, and the reason I say that is if we look at some of the relevant indicators around household, let's call it like household strain in their finances, right? Um, if you look at the debt service ratio, so this is the share of income that's needed to make principal and interest payments on debt, we're sitting at about 15 year lows, right? Now that's going to change as interest rates go up, that's going to start to change, but, but there's a lot of wiggle room to absorb a couple of interest rate hikes, even, you know, like I said, two or three, four is, is, is probably not going to be a problem. The other issue is um, how people are still underappreciating 
how much savings have been accumulated over the last, really last almost two years since COVID began, right? So I did some work on this. Um, we can see that the the, ex, the savings are, are around about $280 billion, right? So you're talking, you know, not quite 15% of GDP. I mean, it's a, it is a huge number. And so I contextualized this in a recent chart and we looked at like, the, the, the two-year cumulative change in savings relative to income going back to 1960, right? And, and it, there's only ever been one other period where we've seen this much savings accumulated in this short period of time. And that was in like the, the early 1980s. And so, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's an exceptional time in that you have all of this household savings, you have all of this wealth being created, balance sheets are improving. Um, there's a lot of room still to absorb those interest rate hikes. And there's just really no signs of stress right now, right? So, you know, everyone always likes to cite mortgage arrears, but mortgage arrears are actually a terrible indicator because, you know, they lag so badly, right? We only now have the September data, right? We're in January, we're only now getting the September data. And mortgages aren't considered in arrears until you've missed three months of payment. So the data that we're getting today is people who missed payments last June. Like it's insane. So there's absolutely no predictive value in mortgage arrears and yet people source them and reference them all the time. But what's tremendously valuable to look at are credit card receivables from credit card trusts. And these report monthly, we already have the December data. And so my view has always been that Canadians uh, by and large, will not default on a mortgage before first skipping out on, let's say, let's say a credit card. Credit card payments are absolutely a leading indicator for mortgages down the road. And so if you follow credit card payments, it's timely data, right? It's insightful. And, and what we're seeing in that is that the, the arrears rate in credit cards are as low as they've ever been, and they're not moving right now, right? So they're at the dead lows, consumer insolvency, they're dead lows. There's just no signs of stress. So when I when I think about two to three rate hikes in 2022, it's not a, a huge concern. Now, if we get into five or six rate hikes and then a couple more in 2023, and then you, you sort of flow that through to, to, to the debt service ratio, that, that would be a problem, right? Because I've done the modeling in that and within, by, you know, by the time you get into mid 2023, you're back to a record high for debt service ratio. So if that were to happen, I would agree we've got, you know, we've got some concerns, but I, I really, man, I'm telling you, I don't see five to eight rate hikes in the next two years. Okay. So then if the, if you don't see that, could the federal government, and there has been some whispers of this coming out of Ottawa or some of the media reporting from Ottawa, do you think the federal government changes qualification? So investors, I don't know how they would qualify investors. You know, that's broad, but let's just say investors yep. have to put down 30%, 35% 100%. or change. What, what's the probability of that coming down the pipe this spring into the spring market? Do you feel? I think it's very high. So I wrote about this in my uh, my well, the, the, the special report, just kind of some of the predictions for 2022. And I put the odds of OSFI, um, which is the federal banking regulator, tightening underwriting around investors at very high, like not 100%, but very high. And the reason for that is like you have to understand how to sort of read the tea leaves when it comes to, to policymakers and regulators. By and large, they don't like to just drop bombs on the market and surprise everyone. And so what policymakers and regulators will do is they will sort of drop hints through their research, through the reports and their speeches about how they're thinking, right? And what they're concerned about. And there have been two big areas of focus, really all of 2021, but, but you could see it really ramping up in the back half. One is that you know, they're concerned about just broadly some deterioration in underwriting uh, and, you know, loan sizes that are getting progressively bigger relative to incomes, right? And so, you know, that suggests that there's, a, I think, a, a small risk that you might see them come out with loan to income ratios. So rather than doing debt servicing, they're going to say you can't take on a loan at more than five times your income. So we're gonna cap it, right? I think that's a small risk, but you know we've seen some other countries do that. But the second thing they've written extensively about is um, the, the, the role that investors are playing in sort of supercharging this market and creating some of these extrapolative expectations, right? So you've got Austin writing about that, you've got the Bank of Canada writing about that, even CMHC 
when you see all of them expressing that concern at once, it, it's a pretty clear sign that they're thinking and they're worried about that. And Something's coming. Through how to, yeah, so I would expect you're going to see um, the down payments raised on any second property, right? So that's going to be uh, investment properties. It's going to be- Vacation home. Uh, vaca- all of that's going to go up. So I think that's- the most likely. And so, you know, whether that's 25% from 20 or whether it's potentially up to 35%, um, but I think that's coming. The other thing they could do is they could start to look at the source of the down payments, right? Because you have to remember that this is a government that's tremendously concerned about wealth inequality, right? And we are seeing a dramatic rise in wealth inequality just as a function of how rapidly house prices are rising. So you've got you know, homeowner households seeing wealth rising rapidly, renter households are nowhere near keeping up. And so what's one of the, the side effects is that one of the side effects is that if you already own a home, it's very easy to buy a second one because the hurdle to saving for a down payment is so much easier because you can tap the existing equity. Your down right? payment's baking in your primary place of residence somewhere. hundred yeah. percent, right? And so if you're concerned about wealth inequality, what do you do? Well, then you start targeting home equity withdrawals as a source of down payment. So you, it would not surprise me if you saw OSFI come out and say, not only are we going to raise the down payments, but we want to verify that that's out of saved capital. And that that could really have an effect on demand. I agree. Here's my, my, my thought with that is that many people already own a bunch of other real estate if they're past 40 years old. Many do. There are enough Canadians that do. I'm like, geez, are we not going to continue to push the inequality because then you know, we see here a lot of people who are forced to buy an investment property, not because they want to get into real estate investing. They just want to protect their family's purchasing power. And they're like, I'm not getting ahead in life with what I'm doing. I'm going to buy a property because property, quote unquote, only goes up. And that looks like the way to go. So they will find people like us and look for help and we'll get them a property. So they're really trying to do best for their family. Now, if the government changes those rules, what comes to my mind is, I know a bunch of people with five, 10, 15 investment properties already. You increase the rules. I have a feeling a large percentage of those people are still going to be able to qualify. And they're going to have less competition from the Canadians who are trying to protect their purchasing power and just get in. So like any government policies, I'm on the side of, and I'm just interested to hear what you think when I say this, that, okay, great. It's going to make a great headline might do something for three to four months because everyone panics. That's what I've seen throughout history in the real estate market. Everyone will freeze for three or four months, six, eight, 12 months move on. And then all of a sudden, naturally, you see lenders loosen up little loopholes here and there where people who have property and have some income can keep buying. And maybe the person trying to buy their first investment property is kind of blocked out of the market. So now we get an unintended consequence of people trying to add assets to their lives blocked out of the market and anyway, I, I'm just throwing shit against the wall, really, Ben. I'm just thinking out loud here. But that's what comes to my mind a little bit yeah. when I hear that. Well, I think you're right. I mean, Tom, I'm not, I'm not advocating, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is a good idea. No, I mean, no, I think, no. Yeah, I know. Sorry. I didn't mean to say it was your idea. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But like, yeah. here's the thing, Tom. So I actually wrote in today's report, which I, you probably haven't seen. I just saw, it, I just saw it come in my email box. I haven't seen it, though. Well, there's this saying, right? I mean, it, if the shit's about to hit the fan, you have to do something even if it's wrong, right? And so this is kind of where the government's at is they're looking at the house prices that are absolutely exploding, right? They're looking at affordability, rent, all the problems that they don't want and they have to be seen to be doing something. And so I'm not suggesting this is necessarily a silver bullet or even the right thing to yeah. do, but, but in terms of what, Look, what's coming, I mean, I think this is almost certainly coming. You know, every other policy change that we've seen where they've tightened credit. Uh, so if you think back to, you know, even back to 2012 when they tightened CMHC rules, right? Uh, OSFI B20, where they, they, you know, the stress test. Every single time the story has been a temporary drop in demand that, it, you know, lasts yeah. this day, yeah. six, nine months. And then we eventually grind back to new highs in terms of demand. And so we, what we've seen, the, the lesson in all those is that when you target the demand side without targeting the supply side, you end up with temporary fixes. Right. Okay. So th- that's, that's interesting then. So what are your thoughts? And sorry, I don't know if I was cutting you off there, but I was just going to head towards the no. supply side and you're just, what you're seeing, what are you seeing across Canada in the greater Toronto area, how, wherever you want to take this, but what are you seeing on the supply side? Well, it's interesting. So th- there's, 
there's a lot of supply in the pipeline, right? So if we look at building permits, in the last 12 months, we've had over 300,000 unit permits granted, right? Which is a record by a massive amount. Um, housing starts, which is like literally shovel in the ground, uh, over 250,000 this year, which is an annual record. So um, there's a lot of construction happening and it's easy to look across you know, city lines and seeing all these cranes and being like, well, how can we be undersupplied? But, but here's the interesting thing. If you deconstruct that into, let's call them three buckets, you condos, purpose-built rentals and single family housing, right? Well, you and I know from the inventory numbers um, that I track closely, it's the single family housing that's the most chronically underbuilt and, and, and the shortages are in that segment across the country, right? Well, what are we building a lot of? So out of the, uh, so there's, there's currently about 310,000 dwellings under construction across the country, right? 110,000 of those are rentals, right? And, and so what we've seen is this dramatic surge in condos and rentals, what we would call multifamily. And the single family segment has really, it's, we're still not even building the, the same number of single family houses that we were building just five years ago, right? So there's still a chronic, even with all of this construction activity, we're not building enough single family. We're building a lot of rentals. I mean, a lot of rentals. I actually think, you know, I mean, population growth rebounding very strongly. We're seeing, you know, all the positive fundamentals are there. But I, even with that, I think, you know, the next couple of years, you're going to see pockets of overbuilding in the rental space. Um, just given the magnitude of what's 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 coming in the pipeline, um, but I still don't see that we're anywhere close to building enough single family, right? And and that's just not changing. So that gets into all sorts of other questions around zoning and 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 how do we try to um, incentivize municipalities to build the single family housing needed? And that's just a much bigger discussion. Um, sure, but what's I'm curious. What's your first? What comes to mind on that? How do we? And I know that it is a big discussion, well, we, but what, what do you think? I'm curious. Well, from a high level, we have a serious issue with um, the kind of the, the disconnect between um, population targeting from the federal government and the ability or the willingness of municipalities to deliver that housing. And that's like a huge disconnect that no one wants to talk about. So like, we're very proud in Canada, rightfully so, about having very robust immigration right? And being a very welcome society. And it is one of our strengths. Like when you think about our superpower in Canada, one of the biggest ones is we For take sure. in the best and the brightest. And, and we all agree that we should be. Well, I don't know. Issue. You took in, Canada took in my parents. So I don't know if it's the yeah. best and the brightest. Oh, I'm joking. I'm joking. But yeah, I don't exist without this country, right? Uh, my father's Croatian, my mother's Scottish. They met in Toronto. So I don't right. exist without Canada. Yeah. But right. So yeah. Yeah. I'm definitely proud of that. For sure. hundred percent. Sure. But see, here's the problem. So we've got the federal government uh, establishing these these immigration targets. So we've got, you know, they targeted 401,000 in, in 2021. We actually hit 410,000, a record high by a substantial margin. On top of that, you've got a separate program that deals with non-permanent residents. So that is, you know, international students, work permit holders. Uh, that creates demand as well. And we've had years where those have added almost 200,000 population. And chronically and, underreported that. Yeah, chronically. Absolutely. No one, absolutely. you discuss it, no one else does. I feel like it's just ignored, like brushing under the table. But sorry, go on, go on. Yeah. And so, okay, so here's, here's the thing. So the ultimate uh, authority to deliver all of this, this, this housing supply rests with the municipalities. And there you've got municipal politicians that have to answer to their next door neighbor about, you know, a why, yeah, exactly. why they don't yeah. want this development in their backyard. And so you went, so the whole, the whole chain breaks down. And so what we're starting to see is um, federal politicians are recognizing that they need a, a strong, you know, like a stick and carrot. Stick. Approach, oh, yeah. right? I'm going to say the same thing. Right? So <laughs> they, they need to incentivize. They need to basically say, listen, if you want money from us to build whatever, some subway infrastructure, whatever it is, that's fine, but we want to see you guys in turn hit these targets. And we're going to, you know, we're going to tie some of that funding to your ability to deliver some of this, this housing that we need. Right. And so that's going to help. Right. And so we're starting to see the feds recognize that there's a big problem there. From the data that you look at, how do you forecast our continued population growth? Do you think it continues? I mean, I think next year's stated target is like 411,000 or, or whatever it is on, on the Canada's website right now, something like that. 
do you, and then the year after 421 or something like that, do you think we continue this? Like, can we pull in this many immigrants? Does this continue? Like, is this our new, is 400 plus our new standard in this country? And the reason I say that, I think someone shared, I can't even remember where I saw it in the U S I think last year they pulled in 400 or 500,000 immigrants at 10 times our size, at 10 times our size, we're pulling in more or roughly the same, let's call it the same, or, you know, I don't know if they pulled in 500,000 or 400, what their number was roughly the same at a 10th of their size. Yeah. Can we continue yeah. that? Can we continue this? Never mind from supplying the housing. I just mean, do you think we can pull in this many immigrants at this pace? Well, here's the thing. So as of mid year, um, the feds were massively under their target to hit, hit their year end. I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't look like it was possible. So what did they do? They threw the resources at it. They threw the floodgates open and they just ramped up that process and they exceeded that target. I mean, you look in the last six months, the, the, you know, new permanent resident admissions absolutely surged. Right. So can they hit those targets? Absolutely. Absolutely. They can. Right. Now the bigger question is, is that an abstract target, right? Are you going to be able to hit that target and target the best and the brightest and be able to target the right demographics, right? Because one of the one of the pushbacks right now against our immigration targeting is that when you look at the demographic composition, it's actually not that much younger than the than existing Canadian population, right? And so we're actually not getting younger via immigration, right? Um, huh, and that's so interesting. I had questions. never looked at that stat. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, what, what I'm sensing, so what, I guess what I'm getting at is I think there, we're starting to see some pushback against immigration targeting, uh, and against the, the, the current level. And some, so I think some fairly valid questions about whether we're getting our best bang for, for the buck in the sense that we know that we have a supply constrained market and an apparent inability to deliver the housing needed to, you know, to, to house everybody that's coming. And so you're starting to get a sense that, you know, there's a bit of a, a, a quiet, um, what's the right word, just frustration, mm-hmm. perhaps in a recognition that the system is not working and that, you know, in some sense, it's, it's not that it's not working, but maybe that it could be, you know, it, it could be revisited and optimized or whatever. And so I guess my, what I'm trying to say is that the politics can change in these sorts of, you know, environments where housing is so unaffordable and you got these crises and it wouldn't shock me if you get a bit of a populist push against these numbers. So can they do it? Absolutely. Will the, will the political landscape allow them to do it? That's, that's more of an open question. What are you seeing around people who arrive in Canada on, you know, student permits and buying property? We see informally have, I have no data around this, but we see just through word of mouth, you know, friends, um, they have, they, you know, the the most recent example, I'll just tell you, it was someone late twenties here as a student bought a condo for about 900 and some odd thousand dollars cash. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just telling you, man, that, or is that just, is that a free, is that just a tiny fringe thing? Um, no. or, or, or do you think that's actually having a sort of substantial impact in the market? Well, here's what you have to realize when the market is this tight, any fringe demand is, um, you know, the, the impacts are magnified, right? Um, yeah, there's that sure. saying that prices are set at the margins. And so if the marginal buyer is a, this university student who is backed by infinite wealth out of some other country, that, that is a problem. Like I hate to say it, that's a problem. That's not, are, are you hearing these... stories like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. There, there, it's hard to get the data on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just informal for us. You know, you kind of hear it and you just try to verify, is that actually true? And that's all we can get. Yeah, and so that's where it gets tricky, right? Because that's, you know, you start to blur the lines between, wow, are we talking about, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a local resident, but it's foreign, technically foreign capital, right? So exactly. you know, how, yeah. how do we feel about that, right? And that's legally coming, coming in, because and you would probably right. better answer this than me, but I was explaining to someone, well, if they have like a legitimate Canadian bank account here, and they have legal yeah. status here as a student, if their parents want to send them some spending money, Right. I mean, send it. I, I, I don't think we can stop it. 
it's just welcome it, and it lands here tricky. in Canada. Okay. No, 100%. It is tricky. We're, we're, I think you could start to see, and by the way, I would say this is a, a tricky subject that absolutely is moving the needle in, in certain cities. And I think we need to have an open discussion around the role of foreign capital Looking in, for in, a home, sure. And it's not just yeah. Canada. There's foreign capital looking for a home everywhere. It's a small economy. Yeah, so that's you're right. Bringing, and, not small. I mean, we're, we're, we're a decent economy, but relative, lead speaking in the G7, we're not the biggest. So some money fly, flies in here. It can have a material impact. Yeah. So one of the things that some other countries have done to kind of help address this is they've rolled out what are called unexplained wealth inquiries, right? And, and it's an interesting concept. And so okay, the idea never... here is... Uh, okay, let's take this the example, and I, I'm going to set aside the student for a moment. But let's take, you know, the the, the quote unquote, you know, housewife in Vancouver who is claiming poverty level income insufficient to even pay their property taxes, but is living in a you know ten million dollar property, right? So in some countries, the the feds actually have the authority to say, explain yourself. Right. Where is this coming from? And if you can't explain it, we're going to assume this is illicit capital and there's going to be consequences for it. Right. And I don't know if we're at the point yet where we need to seriously talk about that. But I think we are. And I'm just going to say we are. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's all sorts of questions around, you know, the legality of all that and how that's sure, yeah. kind of Canadian framework. But um, but it's not it, to me, it's not that's not a horrible idea. Right. I mean, we don't we don't want like the problem in Canada is that. Um, to some extent, we're, we are too welcoming a jurisdiction for illicit capital. And, and then because of that, that then begins to blur the lines between, let's say, that foreign student who is just like they're getting a, a, a legitimate gift from their parents. And that's not illicit capital, but it starts to blur the lines and people just generally become angry at all. Yeah. And I want them in, to have right? a whole. Yeah, I'm not. And I have, you know, yeah, I want the best for everyone. I'm not trying to say that's a a negative that they're buying a home. It's just an interesting way for the capital flows globally to land here in Canada. And like you said, because it hits on the fringes and the fringes kind of dictate the prices. Yeah. I'm, I'm torn. I don't, it's a bit of a mess, Ben. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Well, that's so, so, but, but what you're recognizing though, Tom, is that like we are at the, the, the point where there's no silver bullet. What we need to think about are a whole bunch of sort of unorthodox or, you know, uh, uh, I guess, you know, out of the, out of the consensus type um, policy measures that, that com collectively might begin to move the needle. Right. And so, you know, I, I think we've discovered that foreign buyers are not the problem in Canada by any means. Um, but are they adding some component of demand in an extremely tight undersupplied market uh, yes. And it could that be problematic? Yes. And so like, you know, we need to start thinking about how we want to address those. And that's just one, right? There's a lot of sure. smaller yeah. type yeah. policies that collectively might begin to move the needle on this. Right? Uh, a lot of the audience listening to this is going to be in the greater Toronto area, but we have many people across Canada listening, but because the majority is in the Toronto area, can you paint us a little bit of a picture of what you're seeing in Vancouver, Alberta, a little bit, Calgary, maybe? Just comes yeah, to mind. Yeah. What are you seeing out in those markets just for well, people who don't pay as much attention to them? Sure. Sure. So I, I think the, what's, what's fascinating to me is that the story of um, rapidly falling supply and very strong demand is, is right across Canada, right? We see that in every Metro, right? Um, yeah. So the interesting thing for me is when I look across Canada, like the story of declining inventory levels and very strong demand, that's like the universal across the country story, virtually every metro that we're looking at. Right. So, I mean, Vancouver, we know, has been hot forever. <clears throat> Excuse me. Like we're seeing uh, inventory in Vancouver, same story, sitting at 20 year lows, sales extremely strong, especially in the condo segment. Um, what's interesting is prices are, I say only, prices are only up about 16% year over year, which is about half of what we're seeing in Toronto, right? And that's like a, it's funny in the context of Vancouver, that's like a not, not an insanely hot market. But my sense from looking at the data out there is the prices are, are accelerating and they're heading for an extremely strong spring selling season. So, you know, Vancouver, we sort of know it's, it's, a, it's a similar story to Toronto, just maybe a, a, a notch down on kind of the temperature scale. What I find fascinating is Alberta, because I think everybody seems to 
have left Alberta for dead. And what I'm seeing, I shouldn't laugh. I have many friends out there, but they have, and they've been through a rough patch. Absolutely. But, but, but what I'm seeing is actually extremely strong fundamentals that are only improving. Right. Uh, And so everyone wants to point to, you know, all the vacancies in, in the office buildings, um, you know, the, the relatively high unemployment rate for the rest of the country, all that stuff. What I see is, incredibly cheap startup costs if you want to open a new business, very favorable tax jurisdiction, an incredibly young and educated workforce, ridiculously cheap housing compared to the rest of the country, right? I mean, you have you can buy houses in Calgary today for the same price that you could in 2007, and your carrying costs are a fraction of that, right? There's nowhere else in the country you can say that. No, no. Um, what's starting to change. So you're now seeing sales absolutely explode, right? In both Calgary and Edmonton. Um, And so we just had the strongest year for home sales. And and December, I mean, the the sales levels, I just put this out today, but I mean, you know, you're talking almost double the average from the last last five or six years. Um, So incredibly strong demand, supply is coming off. It's not yet being reflected in prices. Prices in Calgary are up about 9% year over year, which is not nothing, but compared to Toronto, that's pretty tame. Edmonton's only up like 4%, right? And, and what's interesting is we're starting to see, like I've always said, the cure for high prices is high prices and the cure for low prices is low prices. And so you're starting to now see that um, Alberta is, uh, uh, is starting to see more people coming into the the province from other provinces then leave. Okay. And so in other words, their net interprovincial migration is positive, right? Well, what does that mean? It means that people are now moving there, looking for jobs, getting cheaper housing. We haven't seen that since 2015 when house prices were, you know, much higher and oil wow. was much higher and all this. And so the fundamentals to me in Alberta actually look really good. And, and, and by the way, you know, we talk about months of inventory as sort of a barometer for the supply demand balance. Uh, and it is the best predictor for where prices are going. Right. Falling months of inventory means accelerating prices in six months. It's almost, I mean, it's clockwork. So what are we seeing in Alberta? Months of inventory just fell to the lowest level since 2000. And gosh, I don't want to botch my numbers now. Now that I've started to say it, I believe 2007. And so, you know, when we look at that, the last time, here's what I know. The last time months of inventory were this low, Calgary prices were rising by 30% year over year. And Edmonton was up 50% year over year. Right. So, the prices are not yet reflecting the the improving fundamentals. Yeah, what's in, coming? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Right. Okay. And then you know, we, you move beyond that. If we jump in, over into Quebec, I mean, it's the exact same story. It's just, I mean, a, a ridiculous shortage of inventory. But if you jump into the Atlantic province, what I think is really fascinating, and and I've written about this a little bit, is um, we're seeing very strong population growth in the Maritimes. In fact, we just had the two best quarters for population growth in the last 50 years. And there again, you're seeing very strong interprovincial migration flows. And where is it coming out of? It's coming out of Ontario. So you hear all these anecdotes about the people moving from, you know, selling their house in Toronto and they're buying in whatever, New Brunswick. It's in the data. It's actually happening. You are seeing that. So, you know, those places that are relatively affordable, like I've, I, I said, 2022 is going to be the year of the housing nomads, right? Where, you know, the, 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 relatively cheap areas that sort of um yeah it's going to get you're going to start to see those some of those prices come up because you know i think covid has fundamentally disrupted the way that we work and a lot of people are realizing they don't have to be in these big expensive cities they can work remotely from other places and you're going to start to see some of those lower priced areas attract um more or see more demand are you seeing in your any of your forecasts for the next year is there anything on the global scale that is maybe, I don't know if concerns is the right word, but can Canada, I, I guess I'm just thinking maybe the U S is going to, we tend to follow the U S a lot in, yep. in our, in our policy. Of course. Um, the U S maybe they try to raise rates. The bond market shakes over there a little bit. Then we can't raise rates, even the two or three times, never mind the, you know, five or six times, anything out there that you think might throw us a curveball or just, what would be your probability of something like the U.S. not moving rates um, happening that affects Canada? Anything like that come to mind? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, I'm very cognizant of risks. And so, you know, you know, what, mm-hmm. most of my reports have a whole section on like, what are the risks we should be yeah. looking at, right? And 
without question, the biggest risk right now is a policy error on the parts of central banks, but not in terms of, of um, you know, not raising rates enough, but, but I think raising too much, right? I think that's the risk right now. I, th I think there's a risk because of what we're seeing with inflation and because of how tight the labor market is. I've written about this a lot. I think we're going to see very strong wage growth this year. Um, there's a chance that the central banks are going to wake up and realize that they're you know, behind the eight ball on the inflationary front and start raising more aggressively. Now, again, I said, like I said, I think my base case is we're probably going to see two or three rate hikes um, in 2022 in Canada. But when you think about what are the, the tail risks, the tail risk is instead you get like five or six or, or they, they panic because inflation really is not coming down and they're starting to get really concerned. Um, how do you square that? Okay, so like if you start putting probabilities on it, like, I don't know, I'd, I'd put two to three rate hikes as kind of like 50%. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the, the tail, when you start thinking about higher than that, like, could you get five or six? Like, I don't know, it's probably a 10, 20% risk. Uh, and, and that could really materially affect the market. I mean, you, investor psychology can be fickle, right? If all of a sudden your carrying costs start to rise and, you know, 200 basis point move in rates, like that's not nothing in these given, given where affordability is. Right. And from your thinking and forecast, do you think we get to positive real rates or do you think we're going to raise rates, but inflation is going to maybe continue to rip, let's say, you know, CPI six, seven, eight percent. So they raise rates up to, you know, something crazy like four percent or something like that for on, on a mortgage for Canadians, five percent, who knows, but it's still negative real rates. Or do you think we're headed to positive real rate territory? Right. So as you know, I've said, I think rates are going to stay negative this year. That's my base case. Okay. Right. But when you ask about risks, it's the same story. Right. So is there a risk that instead we start to see rates really begin to move? Absolutely. There's that risk. And we'd be silly not to acknowledge it because there's a lot of unknowns and the inflation backdrop is actually pretty concerning if you're mm -hmm. a central banker. Right. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't, Again, I, I'm not. I don't think that's likely that we mm -hmm. see rates really start to rise. I think it's more likely we see them stay negative in real terms. Um, but it's a non-zero possibility that we see a very significant rise in rates, and 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 that could really be problematic for Canadians. This is going to be a fascinating year, Ben. We're all going to be eagerly anticipating your reports. And I, I mean, I'm saying that like, and I'm kind of joking, but, but I mean, it really is like, this feels like a year where a lot comes together. The U.S. is talking about raising rates. Canada is talking about raising rates. Do we get to positive rate territory? I, and I, and I, I think I'm in agreement with you that, yeah, we'll likely stay negative real rates, but this feels like an interesting year. A lot of trends are coming together. I, I agree with that. I think though you have to still frame it against the backdrop of where we are currently, right? It, and and I'll, I keep coming back and anchoring on this month's inventory chart because it's so fundamental to understanding the price and backdrop. And again, I just reemphasize, in order to get to a balanced market, yeah, you need supply to triple, yeah. right? And so even if you start seeing these policy mistakes, like it's not a story for yeah. the first half of the year. It's going to take a long time for these. I mean, unless something really dramatic happens, but I mean, a tripling of the supply or sales falling by two thirds, like it's just... I mean, yeah, it's, it's not impossible, but that's like, a good way to frame it. Yeah, yeah, first yeah. Half, right? yeah. So it's you're a, framing. I like that. You're, you're you're bringing a good context to it for sure. Yeah. Second part of the year will be interesting. Maybe. Yeah. If at all. Maybe. Right? But yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I think it's almost certain that we're going to see the market um, it, at the margins ease up a little bit by in the back half of the year. Not saying we're getting back to a balanced market by any means, but yeah. it's just you, you almost can't stay with a market this ridiculously tight. Because it just, you begin to invite all these policy responses and policy errors and everything, you know, and the government overreacts to the other side, right? And they and they end up kind of stepping on it. You, you saw, there was that report out that CMHC is talking about uh, a 1% uh, tax, tax on, on properties over a million dollars. I mean, these are the sort of policy responses that come out of these hot housing markets. And every time yeah. we get a housing market that gets this crazy you know, some sort of policy comes out and, and it sort of dampens things a little bit. So I, I think that's a reasonable playbook for 2022 is it's just, it's, it's going to be hard to do a repeat of what we just saw. 
I wonder what happens to a bunch of investors who are having negative cash flowing portfolios right now, because I just think back to 1990 when our family, our father ran a drywall company, he started flipping properties, making more money off flipping properties in Mississauga in the late eighties than his drywall company, 1990 hit. I, I swear it was TD bank, but I can't remember hundred percent certainty raised rates. It was bank of Canada raised rates, TD bank raised rates on our family for that flip 2.9% in 30 days. It absolutely wow. crushed. Yeah. Crushed the real estate market. Our family, it almost took down our family. Um, that was devastating. The market went down for six years from 1990 yeah. to 1996. Uh, that was awful. We couldn't sell the property that our father was flipping. It was negative cash flowing when we rented it out. And that was really, his drywall company came to a halt, deep recession. And I'm just thinking, I'm kind of an optimist. Sorry, I'm painting like a negative picture here for anybody listening. I'm an optimist, but in the back of my mind, I'm always like, please out there, any investors always have a positive cash flowing portfolio because that's going to allow you to survive any curveball that comes our way that we don't see or a, or a strong policy error that maybe, you know, you're saying could, it, it, there's at least a probability that there is a, po a, a policy error, error in our future. So have a positive yeah. cash flowing portfolio to survive it. Let's forget about investors, good, bad, or whatever they are to the real estate market. Just survive if you're in the market. Yeah. And I think it'd be foolish not to um, think through those scenarios and not to acknowledge that you are you're investing in what is or has historically been inherently a cyclical industry right now we haven't seen a cycle so it's easy to forget that this no, is yeah. cyclical right it's i feel so like long. old guy when i talk about 1990 people are like really that yeah. happened i'm like yeah no that it was devastating <laughs> yeah yeah no again you know there, there's a lot that's different this time around and, and i never want to be the guy that's saying oh it, you know this is different and so therefore it can't happen um but to see the sort of downturn that we saw in the 90s is uh, at this point, man, it, there's just so much that I see that looks fundamentally different. Um, are we due for a, 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 you know, a few years of perhaps less frothy? Like, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that. Um, but I think your point's well taken, though, that like, you know, people just need to be mindful that that yeah, cycles just happen and, and just don't be crazy. I mean, careful with your leverage and try to get cash flow where you can and don't be, you know, just expect that these, these times don't continue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all I meant. Yeah. Fascinating times. I love this stuff, Ben. I don't, anything else that's coming to mind that you would like to share that you uh, share in uh, private conversations or things that you don't normally share about the Canadian housing market, anything coming to mind that uh, you'd like to say, but you'd never say, you know, I, I, I guess maybe on the, the house, you know, the cash flow negative side of things. One of the things I, I, yeah. I think a, a lot about is um, you know, we know how unaffordable housing is in Canada. We know how, uh, or at least on the surface, right? And, and how hard it is to find cash flowing properties. One of the things that, that always interests me is like, what happens if you instead add back in the principal repayment, right? And, and again, like you and I don't love this math, okay? But, but, it, but this math is not wrong, right? And so what I mean is, Okay, so if you take like the average condo, let's say in Toronto, and you were to try to buy it at, you know, 20% down, 80% loan to value, like they're substantially cash flow negative, right? But then if you add back in the principal repayment, because people forget that with rates as low as they are, that you're, you're on average, you're about two thirds principal repayment from day one, where when you go back to the 90s that you remember, you were talking about 5%. It's a good point. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it, I, for years, I was always the, the person that was like, man, these cash flow negative investors, what are they thinking? And, <laughs> but, but, the, but if you have the, the, the cash flow and a stable job to, you know, to, to, to pay that burn every month, you know, I don't love the math, but, but when you run that math through on like an internal rate of return, uh, it's not a terrible investment even being cash flow negative, right? Because at the end of five years, you've paid off, you know, you've paid off almost 15% of the value of the mortgage. And uh, even if house prices haven't gone up, like you're, you, you know, if you put 20% down and you've made 15% in five years, like that's not bad, right? It's a fair point. And with government policies, I don't see where we stop spending as a country. I don't see our deficits magically going away. So I just feel like we didn't talk about M2 growth or anything today, but I, I just don't feel like we are going to be in an environment where all of a sudden we are very, you know, austerity is everywhere and we're going to cut down our spending. I feel like we're just going to continue to spend in this country 
which then would tell me I'd rather own assets instead of dollars. And that will be, you know, be the reward. That's where you want to play. So I think your point, yeah, is really valid. Like, I I think that's the trend that continues over this decade. Yeah, I, I, I don't see how we, I don't see how we stop spending. I just don't get it with this much debt in this country. I don't, I don't understand how we could. I think that's probably right. And I think that the, the other issue is with this much debt, like, I mean, I've, I've written about this a lot as well. It's just, when you look at not just household, but other um, non-financial private sector debt, and you, you run through the, 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 you know, the leverage in, in that sector, and you look at debt service payments across all industries and you compare it to other countries like Canada. I mean, we know intuitively that Canada is extremely leveraged as a country, um, but that does actually act as a break on what the central bank can do without tipping the economy into recession, right? And so, you know, what, what is the answer to all of that debt? The answer to all of that debt is what we call financial repression, which is keeping interest rates lower than they ought to be and below the rate of inflation. And you let the economy run a little hot and it, that lowers the burden of the debt over time, right? And that's the way less painful than trying to deliver and, and pay that off, right? Uh, and so, you know, when you think about, well, what's, what's the path of least resistance for a politician? That's it right there. And so, you know, in that environment, assets are the winner, right? Any financial asset is, is a winner. Ben, I always love talking to you. I love the data that you put out. Thank you for doing what you're doing. I feel like in this country, it's really hard to get data around the things that you report on. So just thank you for everything you're doing. I mean that sincerely. I know you share a lot on Twitter for free, um, but your edge analytics uh, reports are amazing. That's at edgeanalytics.ca. I feel like I'm now working as a salesperson for you, but uh, I mean that, I mean that, I mean, it's great information. So thank you for coming on podcasts like this and sharing the information. I think you give context to a lot of Canadians who are confused about the real estate market, you know, um, so I appreciate everything that you do and I'm not sure how to pay it back to you, but, uh, just if you could keep sharing the message, I really think you're having an impact across the country. So keep going, Ben, we need you. We need you. We need Thanks, you John. to pull this data together. <laughs> so, uh, appreciate yeah. It. And then where is that? Is that the best place to, uh, for people to find you edgeanalytics.ca or can you share your Twitter handle wherever yeah, else, yeah, whatever Twitter else handles, comes to mind? Uh, yep. Sure. Twitter handles at Ben Rabideau. Um, and the edge analytics, it's a, it's a service for real estate professionals. And so, you know, I, I wish I could open it up broadly to everyone, but at this point, it's just, if you're, if you're in the real estate space or tangentially related, if you're in development or you know, construction or appraiser or anything related to real estate, then, then, um, you know, you're eligible to sign up for the service. Uh, and, uh, you know, all the details are at edgeanalytics.ca. Thanks, Ben. Thank you for this. If you ever need anything, let us know. My pleasure, Tom. It's good to see you again, buddy. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. All right. Take care of yourself, man. Hey, everyone. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Ben. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Rabidou. I'm going to spell that out. It's at B-E-N-R-A-B-I-D-O-U-X. So you can follow him on Twitter at Ben Rabidou. And if you want access to his reports, if you're in the real estate industry or the construction industry, you can get access to that. You can visit edgeanalytics.ca. That's edgeanalytics.ca for that. And if you want a deep dive on some of the population data that we shared on this particular episode, you can get our 2022 copy of our population explosion report at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash reports. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash reports. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life. Your terms.